Book Two, Chapter One of Lord Tony's Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. Lord Tony's Wife by Imuska Orsky. Part One of Chapter One, Book Two, Nana, December, seventeen ninety-three, Chapter One the tiger's lair part one nana is in the grip of the tiger representative carrier with powers as of a proconsul has been sent down to stamp out the lingering remnants of the counter-revolution la vendée is temporarily subdued the army of the royalists driven back across the loire but traitors still abound this the national convention in paris hath decreed there are traitors everywhere they were not all massacred at cholet and savenay disbanded yes but not exterminated and wolves must not be allowed to run loose lest they band again and try to devour the flock therefore extermination is the order of the day every traitor or would-be traitor every son and daughter and father and mother of traitors must be destroyed ere they do more mischief and carrier carrier the coward who turned tail and bolted at cholet is sent to nana to carry on the work of destruction wolves and wolflings all let none survive give them fair trial of course as traitors they have deserved death have they not taken up arms against the republic and against the will and the reign of the people but let a court of justice sit in nana town let the whole nation know how traitors are dealt with let the nation see that her rulers are both wise and just let wolves and wolflings be brought up for trial and set up the guillotine on place du buffet with four executioners appointed to do her work there would be too much work for two or even three let there be four and let the work of extermination be complete and carrier with powers as of a proconsul arrives in nana town and sets to work to organize his household civil and military with pomp and circumstance for the son of a small farmer destined originally for the church and for obscurity is now virtual autocrat in one of the great cities of france he has power of life and death over thousands of citizens under the direction of justice of course so now he has citizens of the bedchamber and citizens of the household he has a guard of honor and a company of citizens of the guard and above all he has a crowd of spies around him servants of the committee of public safety so they are called they style themselves la compagnie marat in honor of the great patriot who was foully murdered by a female wolfling so la compagnie marat is formed they wear red bonnets on their heads no stockings on their feet short breeches to display their bare shins their captain flory has access at all times to the person of the proconsul to make reports on the raids which his company effect at all hours of the day or night their powers are supreme too in and out of houses however private up and down the streets through shops taverns and warehouses along the quays and the yards everywhere they go everywhere they have the right to go to ferret and to spy to listen to search to interrogate 
The red-capped company is paid for what it can find. Piecework, what? Work for the guillotine. And they it is who keep the guillotine busy. Too busy, in fact. And the court of justice sitting in the Hotel du Département is overworked, too. Carrier gets impatient. Why waste the time of patriots by so much paraphernalia of justice? Wolves and wolflings can be exterminated so much more quickly, more easily than that. It only needs a stroke of genius. One stroke, and Carrier has it. He invents the Nui Adas. The drownages, we may call them. They are so simple. An old, flat-bottomed barge. The work of two or three ship's carpenters. Portholes below the waterline and made to open at a given moment. All so very, very simple. Then a journey downstream as far as Belle Isle or La Marchala, and sentence of deportation executed without any trouble on a whole crowd of traders. Vertical deportation, Carrier calls it facetiously, and is mightily proud of his invention and of his witticism, too. The first attempt was highly successful. Ninety priests and not one escaped. Think of the work it would have entailed on the guillotine and on the friends of Carrier who sit in justice in the Hotel du Département. Ninety heads. Bah! That old, flat-bottom barge is the most wonderful labor-saving machine. After that, the drownages become the order of the day. The red-capped company recruits victims for the hecatomb, and over Nana town there hangs a pale of unspeakable horror. The prisons are not vast enough to hold all the victims, so the huge entrepot, the bonded warehouse on the quay, is converted. Instead of chests of coffee, it is now encumbered with human freight. Into it pell-mell are thrown all those who are destined to assuage carrier's passion for killing. Ten thousand of them, men, women, and young children, counter-revolutionists, innocent tradesmen, thieves, aristocrats, criminals, and women of evil fame. They are herded together like cattle, without straw whereon to lie, without water, without fire, with barely food enough to keep up the last attenuated thread of a miserable existence. And when the warehouse gets over full, to the Loire with them, a hundred or two at a time, pestilence, dysentery, decimates their numbers. Under pretense of hygienic requirements, two hundred are flung into the river on the fourteenth day of December. Two hundred, many of them women, crowds of children and a batch of parish priests. Some there are among Carrier's colleagues, those up in Paris, who protest. Such wholesale butchery will not redound to the credit of any revolutionary government. It even savors of treachery. It is unpatriotic. There are the emissaries of the National Convention, deputed from Paris to supervise and control. They protest as much as they dare, but such men are swept off their feet by the torrent of Carrier's gluttony for blood. Carrier's mission is to purge the political body of every evil that infests it. Vague and yet precise, he reckons that he has full powers and thinks he can flaunt those powers in the face of those sent to control him. He does it, too, for three whole months, ere he in his turn meets his doom. But for the moment he is omnipotent. He has to make report every week to the Committee of Public Safety, and he sends brief, garbled versions of his doings. He is pacifying La Vendée. 
he is stamping out the remnants of the rebellion he is purging the political body of every evil that infests it anon he succeeds in getting the emissaries of the national convention recalled he is impatient of control they are weak pusillanimous unpatriotic he must have freedom to act for the best after that he remains virtual dictator with none but obsequious terrified myrmidons around him these are too weak to oppose him in any way and the municipality dare not protest either nor the district council nor the departmental they are merely sheep who watch others of their flock being sent to the slaughter after that from within his lair the man-tiger decides that it is a pity to waste good barges on the cattle fling them out he cries fling them out tie two and two together man and woman criminal and aristo the thief with the ci devant duke's daughter the ci devant marquis with the slut from the streets fling them all out together into the loire and pour a hail of grape-shot above them until the last struggler has disappeared equality he cries equality for all fraternity unity in death his friends call this new invention of his marriage republicaine and he is pleased with the moot and republican marriages become the order of the day part two nina itself now is akin to a desert a desert wherein the air is filled with weird sounds of cries and of moans of furtive footsteps scurrying away into dark and secluded byways of musketry and confused noises of sorrow and of lamentations nina is a city of the dead a city of sleepers only carrier is awake thinking and devising and planning shorter ways and swifter for the extermination of traitors in the hotel de la villostro the tiger has built his lair at the apex of the island of fado with the windows of the hotel facing straight down the loire from here there is a magnificent view downstream upon the quays which are now deserted and upon the once prosperous port of nana the staircase of the hotel which leads up to the apartments of the proconsul is crowded every day and all day with suppliants and with petitioners with the citizens of the household and the members of the compagnie marat but no one has access to the person of the dictator he stands aloof apart hidden from the eyes of the world a mysterious personality whose word sends hundreds to their death whose arbitrary will has reduced a once flourishing city to abject poverty and squalor no tyrant has ever surrounded himself with a greater paraphernalia of pomp and circumstance no aristo has ever dwelt in greater luxury the spoils of churches and chateaux fill the hotel de la villestro from attic to cellar gold and silver plate adorn his table priceless works of art hang upon his walls he lolls on couches and chairs which have been the resting-place of kings the wholesale spoliation of the entire countryside has filled the demagogue's abode with all that is most sumptuous in the land and he himself is far more inaccessible than was le roy soleil in the days of his most towering arrogance than were the popes in the glorious days of medieval rome john baptiste carrier the son of a small farmer the obscure deputy for the cantal in the national convention dwells in the hotel de la villestro as in a stronghold 
No one is allowed near him save a few, a very few, intimates: his valet, two or three women, Fleury the commander of the Marats, and that strange and abominable youngster, Jacques le Loet, about whom the chroniclers of that tragic epoch can tell us so little. A cynical young braggart, said to be a cousin of Robespierre, and the son of a midwife of Nantes, beardless, handsome, and vicious, the only human being, so we are told, who had any influence over the sinister proconsul, mere hanger-on of carrier or spy of the National Convention, no one can say, a malignant personality which has remained an enigma and a mystery to this hour. None but these few are ever allowed now inside the inner sanctuary wherein dwells and schemes the dictator. Even Lamberty, Fouquet, and the others of the staff are kept at arm's length. Martin Roger, Chauvelin, and other strangers are only allowed as far as the ante-room. The door of the inner chamber is left open, and they hear the proconsul's voice and see his silhouette pass and repass in front of them, but that is all. Fear of assassination, the inevitable destiny of the tyrant, haunts the man-tiger even within the fastnesses of his lair day and night a carriage with four horses stands in readiness on la petite hollande the great open tree-bordered place at the extreme end of the isle fado and on which give the windows of the hotel de la villestreux day and night the carriage is ready with coachman on the box and postilion in the saddle who are relieved every two hours lest they get sleepy or slack with luggage in the boot and provisions always kept fresh inside the coach everything always ready lest something a warning from a friend or a threat from an enemy or merely a sudden access of unreasoning terror the haunting memory of a bloody act should decide the tyrant at a moment's notice to fly from the scenes of his brutalities part three carrier in the small room which he has fitted up for himself as a sumptuous boudoir paces up and down just like the wild beast in its cage and he rubs his large bony hands together with the excitement engendered by his own cruelties by the success of this wholesale butchery which he has invented and carried through there never was an uglier man than carrier with that long hatchet face of his those abnormally high cheekbones that stiff lanky hair that drooping flaccid mouth and protruding underlip nature seemed to have set herself the task of making the face a true mirror of the soul the dark and hideous soul on which of a surety satan had already set his stamp but he is dressed with scrupulous care not to say elegance and with a display of jewellery the provenance of which is as unjustifiable as that of the works of art which fill his private sanctum in every nook and cranny in front of the tall window heavy curtains of crimson damask are drawn closely together in order to shut out the light of day the room is in all but total darkness for that is the proconsul's latest caprice that no one shall see him save in semi-obscurity captain fleury has stumbled into the room swearing lustily as he barks his shins against the angle of a priceless louis the fifteenth bureau he has to make report on the work done by the company Marat fifty-three priests from the department of anjou who have refused to take the new oath of obedience to the government of the republic the red-capped company who tracked them down and arrested them vow that all these galotins have precious objects 
money, jewelry, gold plate, concealed about their persons. What is to be done about these things? Are the Gallatins to be allowed to keep them, or to dispose of them for their own profit? Carrier is highly delighted. What a haul! Confiscate everything, he cries. Then ship the whole crowd of that pestilential rabble, and don't let me hear another word about them. Flory goes, and that same night fifty-three priests are shipped in accordance with the orders of the proconsul, and Carrier, still rubbing his large bony hands contentedly together, exclaims with glee, What a torrent, eh? What a torrent! What a revolution! And he sends a letter to Robespierre, and to the Committee of Public Safety he makes report. Public spirit in Nena, he writes, is magnificent. It has risen to the most sublime heights of revolutionary ideals. End of chapter 1, part 1 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah.